Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palomariu, Managing Director of Elpid Global. Our mission is to connect the supply chain ecosystem in Asia and globally by bringing forward the most interesting leaders in the industry. And I'm very happy to have with us today, Susan Hunsbeck-Bedersen, who is the Senior Vice President for Devices and Supply Chain Management at Novo Nordisk. Novo Nordisk has been producing insulin and helping people cope with diabetes for more than 90 years. And today it supplies half of the world's insulin and serves 28 million patients in around 170 countries, employing approximately 41,000 people worldwide. Suzanne joined Novo Nordisk in 2002 and has since been holding positions as head of procurement, divisional CFO for global product supply and IT, before taking up her current position as senior vice president of devices and supply chain management. She is responsible for the global end-to-end supply chain management operations, ranging from procurement to manufacturing to planning to distribution, all the way uh, to the seven global affiliates and serving 170 countries. And she's also responsible for the manufacturing development of assembly and packaging operations across the global sites. Her organization bridges efforts in R&D with operations with a global reach across US, Brazil, Europe, China, and manufacturing in Japan, Russia, Algeria, and a number of partnership setups in multiple countries. Suzanne, thank you for making the time and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So wanted to ask you, Suzanne, as a start of the, of the discussion, um, you've achieved um, some incredible things in terms of supply chain and your end-to-end supply chain activities at Novo Nordisk. You're only one of the two healthcare companies that have been recognized in the prestigious top 25 supply chains uh, in the world by, by Gardner, um, which is a very comprehensive and, and thorough process to get on that list. So I'm, I'm curious to start maybe with asking you, what are some of the accomplishments that you have, you and your team have, have achieved and you're most proud of? Yeah, I think the, the thing that I am most proud of is how the supply chain is positioned in the company today. Um, we came from when we in first in, um, established the Global Supply Chain Management Organization um, from being a planning engine. Uh, and, and today I would say we're a partner to the business. We are, are closely integrated into early decision processes in the R&D phase, in the development of products and the choices of materials and, and, um, and manufacturing processes. So the, our ability to today integrate into the agenda and be a partner and sit at the table when discussions are taking place, rather than planning on the back end of of decisions made, um, that makes me really proud. That that means that that is an evidence, I believe, of my organization delivering value to the to the company. And I, I think that's what makes me most proud is the positioning of supply chain today. And that ultimately is is business partnering. So definitely, um, definitely a lot of uh, from from our chats and from our. Uh, talks across the industry also i think it's, it's probably one of the the main and key criteria uh, for supply chain to be a partner with the business and um, and great to hear that that you're at, at that level because still in a lot of organizations i think it's a, it's a challenge to be to have that seat at the table from a supply chain perspective asking you in terms of because i know you're doing a lot of interesting things in in and new initiatives as part of industry 4.0 um would like to ask you what are some of the, some of the most um, uh, 
exciting, sexy projects that you're working on, let's call it a non-nordist, and where you're putting a lot of emphasis in terms of future development for uh, for the industry 4.0. I think we have we have so many things ongoing at this moment. I mean, in in all corners of the organization, um, the elements of digitalization and the next generation of automation is is changing how we look at our processes. It's down to the planning processes, how fast we can simulate scenarios and drive forward positions. So very much into the space of analytics, providing uh, guidance and and predicting better shipment routes or better packaging options for our shipments. If we step into the factories again, we're basically rethinking our processes, what it takes to do them. So adding next generation robotics is one, but to a very large extent, it's leveraging the data in our system to make smarter and better decisions or even guide our people on the shop floor to make the right interventions. So there are pretty cool things happening where we are trying to shift how we think of complexity. Things we used to perceive as complex, for instance, product mixes or shift overs or format changes, we're trying to eliminate and reduce some of these barriers through technology. So, so how can we move towards continuous manufacturing, not have batch chains over, then we're less sensitive to product mix and, and changes. And, and that technology leaves us a lot of opportunities to address. I think that's, that's quite interesting. So we're basically more or less trying to look at, at from an angle of what creates complexity and difficulties in our current processes and then completely rethinking this. Mm. And it's in, as it's in the, production of our uh, products. It's also in all the supportive administrative processes. So we, we have a, a big back office support to generate the data to, uh, to, to demonstrate the integrity of our products. And in those processes, there is a huge opportunity as well to, to improve. Introducing um, RPA, getting unstructured data structured and accessible to people to make better decisions. So, so I'm, I must admit, I'm super excited about this notion of being a 95-year-old company at rethinking the core of how we, uh, how we perform our, pro our key processes. Mm. And I would, I would want to ask you in terms of if you make, if you make an, an exercise of imagination and, and also working on your objectives, um, what do you think your supply chain organization and, and capabilities will look like in three to five years down the line? What would, what would, have, you know, what would have improved and, and, and how would it look like and feel like? And I would say to a large extent, we would have automated many of the things we do uh, today. I, I believe by accessing data, ensuring data quality is, is, um, is high. We, are, we can al allow um, automation of many of the decision and planning processes we have today. That means we can upgrade our focus to work more on development together with our, par uh, our colleagues across the company on, on upgrading our business model in terms of providing scenario um, evaluations and you can say we become more sophisticated in how we approach our opportunities. Being even more upfront in predicting things that can disrupt and address these more proactively than we do today. So, so I foresee a, a shift of focus from, from uh, 
a here and now planning effort for many of the people in, in the supply chain to, uh, to foreseeing, predicting and um, mitigating risk scenarios and, and optimization opportunities. And in terms of uh, specifically from now to then, and to bring it also in, in, and to make it uh, sort of uh, bring it down to the, to the practicality for some of the listeners that have many, many challenges themselves. And, and of course, you have your own set of challenges. So I'd like to also ask you from that perspective of main problems and challenges that lie ahead of you in order to achieve that. What do you see as some of the, uh, the top ones that you will need to overcome? Well, first and, and foremost, I think for every one of us, it is getting the uh, it is getting the the quality of our data um, in control. So we do have still an effort to go to make sure that the, the data we work on and that we <clears throat> that we try to become more sophisticated on holds the right level of quality. It it is real time and it is accessible. So so there is a lot of infrastructural elements that needs to come together before we can change our focus from the task that we have today. And, and that's an ongoing effort. It's a journey we've already been on for some time. I would still say that from a very practical perspective, we still need to invest into ensuring the quality of our master data, how well it reflects the reality in, our, in, our, in the value chain, our transactional data quality and the timely accessibility of that. And down into the factory floor, uh, getting access to the data that helps us understand uh, upcoming disruption. So there's a lot still to do, even though I think we've come far, still in terms of ensuring um, infrastructure and data quality. And I wanted to, uh, to ask you um, specifically, so that is on the data side, how about on the soft element of mindset of, of people's side? Do you see any challenges around that in terms of, because usually when it comes to to changes and, and it's an ongoing change in today's world really, but usually we as humans are, are a little bit reluctant to, to change. Do you see that as potentially a challenge as well, the, the constant uh, retraining, reskilling, uh, yeah, almost uh, learn, unlearn and relearn uh, type, of a, type of a situation? And, and how do you normally address that? Yes, you're actually touching on the most important point. I think when I listen in on the digital transformation journey of many companies, there is a strong emphasis on, on, on onboarding the new talents, the digital natives. I actually think the bigger challenge that is, is um, upskilling and in, in onboarding the existing organization. And one of my realizations was that I needed to invest not, o not only into onboarding of new skills, but actually into the, the skill level and understanding of my, my management teams, my direct reports, their management teams. Actually, I saw managers being a barrier to making the or conducting the transformation because they were ignorant to the opportunities. So, so a lot of what we spent time on the, the past two years period has been in terms of exposing uh, our leaders to the opportunities by visiting um, institutions that are more mature than ours, visiting other industries. Uh, so, so I cannot expect my, my leadership team to drive forward the transformation I want to see unless I also invest in their resources. And that then is the truth for all layers of the organization. The legacy organization needs to, to be part of the journey and, and we need to make sure we invest in in that as well. So I would much rather train an operator 
in the ability to to uh, to uh, program an app, then I would provide an app that would ease the work. And that's what we're trying to do. We are onboarding our technicians, our operators, our, our academics, our leaders, in terms of understanding more what are the opportunities and giving them the basic skills. Thereby, they can start pulling the solutions where they see the value. Because another danger is, and I think many companies struggle with that, is there is a hype around the technologies. And so if you push technology into the organization, danger is it doesn't deliver value. The adoption rate is slow because people are not that excited about it. It's, it's pushed on them rather than uh, becoming a pull where the actual need is. So, so I would rather make that investment and have my organization pull the actual value adding opportunities into their operations and by being inspired and, and uh, enthusiastic about the opportunities that they can see once they begin to understand some of the, um, the things technology can do for them. So, so people is as much part of the journey, if not even more than understanding the uh, technological opportunities. Mm, for, for sure, and it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a task to, to accomplish. So would you, on, on top of your mind, and I know that, that uh, sometimes it's not easy to remember all this, these numbers, but maybe would you have some sense of, of um, success KPIs or success uh, numbers or achievements in terms of what you've managed to, to drive by doing, doing so, whether it is uh, cost, whether it is uh, optimization, whether it is effectiveness, what, whatever might be the measures that you've, you've seen uh, you, or you've measured the success of this initiative? Yeah, well, the first, the first objectives we set was actually more that of harmonizing our approach to our businesses because we didn't even have a language to talk about our planning. We didn't really have a proper understanding of what defined the sizes of our inventories. We didn't have a co coherent measurement systems in terms of our service levels. So whereas my vision and ambition was to, to think of an end-to-end -end integration, I, my main story from the very beginning was getting the basics right. It was getting everyone out of their, their, their individual planning system into one global ERP platform. It was closing the gap in our planning system to have everyone working in the system. It was to develop uh, the planning functions in our current uh, system that, that wasn't there. It was developing um, the, um, the framework of how we defined our inventories. Um, up until then, I would say it was, it was more so a function of experience and individual preferences than it was actually as such a, a, um, an inventory management systems that was defined based on design of the supply chain. So my initial part was less so pressing on KPIs, more so talking about getting a, a harmonized approach to how we were running the supply chain, getting our measurement systems in place and, and having um, yeah, a coherent approach to uh, to pretty basic supply chain things. Only then, after that, we started um, we started becoming more ambitious in terms of how we could integrate uh, more across the chain, and and adding on to that, what what we've most recently been been investing quite a lot in is the, the analytics. How do we how do we get the full transparency? How do we know we make the right decisions? based on, on, uh, on data that everyone tr 
discussed, actually moving away from discussing whether data is right to, to having discussions where we don't discuss data, but actually discuss what are the business opportunities uh, that we should pursue. So the journey took an upstart uh, or an offset in, um, in, in connecting the organization. So uh, our, our abilities to supply patients has always been a very high priority. It's chronicle diseases, pa patients do not easily shift around between products. We service, as, a, as you mentioned in the very beginning, uh, uh, 29 million patients across the globe in 170 countries. We do that no matter the turbulence that may be there due to political turmoil, um, natural disasters, war zones will supply anything. So, so we, we have throughout kept a very high service level. What's been more my attention point has been the efficiency in terms of delivering to that high service level. Mm -hmm. No, but that's fantastic. And it's, it's true business partnering. That's, that's what we would call supply chain as being a, a true strategic business partner. And, um, and great to hear that you are involved even, uh, I mean, at such an early stage in terms of the product development, which makes a lot of sense once you have the right data in place. And, and I guess uh, this question cropped into my mind and I will make a little bit of a link. And I heard it at the conference recently. I don't know if the statistic is correct or not, but there was a, there was a, uh, a number which was extremely high in my mind, but it's probably close to reality, which said that most of the manufacturing and supply chain organizations, and it, this is not mostly MNCs, but it's smaller, medium-sized companies as well, still rely heavily on Excel and they don't have centralized data and, and so on and so forth. Obviously, uh, Novo Nordisk and a lot of other companies, uh, the top Fortune 500 or top Fortune 100 have a lot of advancements in supply chain, but I want to uh, throw you this scenario, Suzanne. If you were in the shoes of a, maybe a smaller company, maybe less access to, to all the, the tech or uh, you're running still a lot of the supply chain in Excel, what would be some of the basic fundamental steps that you would take to digitize fast or fastest or the, the low hanging fruit and the basic principles that you would do to get them up to speed uh, soonest? Because a lot of organizations are in that situation where they're unfortunately or fortunately, that's just the reality. They're still kind of incipiently starting on the journey and they, they don't know what to do first. So what would be your thoughts to, to this question? Of course, it, uh, any steps into the analytics world takes an offset in what, what is the most critical, critical performance parameters. So I would uh, certainly start out by, by saying, where do I have my biggest question marks? What is the most critical agenda item to be addressed and start building the data around that? Is that the, so no, no, no doubt that I would start with, uh, with my most critical business process. It's not a huge team that started this off. I'd, I'd even say with less than 10 people. So, so I would say smaller companies can do this too. Uh, importance becomes making data accessible, becomes trusting your data that you need abilities to clean that out but that's not the effort of a big organization that that can actually be done by a, a few good uh, data guys so probably make an investment in if, if not those are already in the company to hire in a few to help you uh, help you do that there are a lot of good visualization tools um, available data is is uh, is is great but data that is not converted into intelligence is, is, is not that exciting. So you need to be able to present it in a way that it becomes in, 
and intelligence for you on that business topic that was that is uh, most critical. And then I say intelligence is worth nothing if it is not converted to actions. And so take that what you see and make sure that you act on it. One of the concerns I had when I saw started seeing the um, the many dashboards evolving was are we actually using them now is this just the hype of being able to visualize things we didn't see before or is action actually happening so i did a lot of walking around trying to uh, you know visit the dashboards to know that we were actually taking actions on the back of those um so data converted to intelligence intelligence converted to actions is really the journey so start small and start with the most critical business aspects if you need to hire in a few people to help you do that, good and not not necessarily huge systems needed to uh, to to get started. Then once you pick up on the, those impacts that you're able to create, hopefully that allows you to reinvest uh, into to building a stronger muscle. And that's basically how we've gone about it. We we didn't start out with a with a big program on this. We didn't start out establishing a big organization. We we started out with a handful of people. Um, once we saw the effect and the impact it created, we added more resources into it. And, and today, the fact that I have more 400 data stewards being able to, to help themselves to a large extent, and, and we, we drive this kind of self-service environment. My central team is, is across manufacturing and supply chain is probably 30 people at this point in time. And they work on the more, the more complicated matters. They go out and help in the line organization. Uh, so the pull from the line organization basically then um, means that I know that I'm creating business impact because the line organization would not pull on my central team unless it was actually uh, making a difference for them. Mm. So I do central led, but I also, uh, to a large extent, believe in the distributed knowledge. Also goes for how we work with robotics, how we work with different kind of types of digital tools a push of knowledge and a push of capabilities, but a very strong pull from the, from the, from the broad organization is, is how I, I would like to go about it. Mm. I don't believe in this central push of solutions as the only means of driving transformation. Got it. Moving the conversation slightly to the agility and flexibility required for a global supply chain and, and you run big global uh, scope of 170 countries and there's big differences between established markets versus emerging markets and there's uh, as you rightfully said high volatility of demand for emerging markets how do you build that uh, agility and flexibility in your supply chain to make sure you're not caught by surprise maybe some principles yes i, I would touch it in on, on two different aspects then one is of course uh, a very close collaboration with the markets to get the best signals I can from from the market. So the fact that whatever is picked up in the local market is in a structured manner feeding into our planning decisions. Um, so that, that's one element of it that I understand. What could potentially happen that I can at least bring that into the scenarios I do. Particularly I would say around launches where we see in our business, the most volatility. Once we start developing markets to a large extent, um, patients are loyal and, and uh, 
we, we, we don't see the volatility that fast-moving consumer goods do not for, for chronic uh, diseases. So volatility is then more related to, to uh, tender markets versus uh, other markets. So that, that creates some turbulence. But picking up demand signals in, a de in an efficient manner is one element of it. Another element that is uh, developing the responsiveness within the supply chain. How fast can we act on the decisions uh, that we see? And, uh, and that, of course, is again down to how we design the supply chain. Where are we decoupling? How can we, how, how fast is the lead time within our facilities? Uh, distinguishing between the products, portfolios that, that requires, um, that require that has a higher mix, for instance, differentiating our lines so that we know so some serve the more steady, uh, stable markets and some factories and, and lines and, and organizations are designed to fit more the responsiveness of fast lead times or, or fast changeovers. Mm. So and then which we're looking at, at and and working on how can we modulize, for instance, in the device area that I'm responsible for, how do we modulize our products that that we postpone variations uh, as, as far down the chain as we possibly can. And that is actually an effort that takes place when we work with the development organization to make sure that that is, is helping us uh, build the right level of responsiveness later on in the product life. And I wanted to ask you in terms of your suppliers, because there's some really good case studies um, that you, you mentioned in the past, and we picked up on collaborating with your suppliers, and especially because you don't have uh, strictly to protect the, the IP, then you can share a lot of things and, and you can develop long-term relationships uh, to the point where uh, you are sharing that you invite them to your factory, you do joint value stream mapping together. Could you share with us uh, some, some case studies of collaboration, maybe for other people within supply chain and manufacturing to, to learn from on how to work best with their suppliers? Yes, I, I, I strongly believe in partnerships. Um, as I, we talked about it internally, the company, of course, that also goes externally to the company. I, I, I think we, we miss out on the potential whenever we try to stay arm's uh, length. Uh, I, I truly believe in, in trying to join the agendas. And since we would rather have long-lasting relationship with our suppliers, there's very good reasons to try to form common agendas. So what we've done, let me pick out a couple of examples. We've sat down with some suppliers and, and done value stream maps together. Uh, internally, we take, um, when we go on an, on an optimization journey to a large extent, we, we very often uh, start out with saying, let's try to map out what's happening today. Sitting down with a supplier to see what is that value stream look like when it cuts across the companies is actually an interesting one. Sometimes we find that the requirements we're pushing on the suppliers or how we communicate our demand or controls we are, we are asking for is, is maybe not fitting their systems very well. And, and sometimes we don't even know uh, all the good stuff we can get from a supplier unless we go through that exercise. So, so trying to put together a joint team, doing joint value stream maps, figuring out how can we align our processes internally has, has uncovered a very nice potentials um, in terms of removing redundant work or just trying to help each other out improve. Um, 
We also have areas where we have outsourced the majority, 80-90% of our processes while still doing some internally. Quite often when we say we meet suppliers and we say let's share what, it, what best look, looks like, they're a little hesitant at first because they're thinking, oh, you're only doing this because, uh, and then, then we don't have a competitive advantage any longer. We invite them in to our factories to see how we're, how we're doing, sharing our better practices, sharing with them what we find is difficult, and allow them to look in depth into our, to many of our processes. And, and that kind of opens up a dialogue where we can sit down, the technical teams, and talk about what, what are the, the learnings or the experience that we've built up over the years to, uh, to, to, to drive really high efficiencies. And uh, over time, that mutual trust that we both parties gain more from that close collaboration develops. And, and I'm a strong believer, of course, we have intellectual property we need to protect, but there are so many opportunities to share. And, uh, and, and doing, doing that is, is builds close, close collaborations, but also helps uh, us develop. And I, I do also humbly believe that we sometimes help our suppliers develop their businesses as well in terms of how they, they, they set up or the choices they make in, in their factories. We have teams meet up even at operator levels to share experiences and see how can we do that, particularly when we have uh, uh, similar processes uh, internally and externally. Mm. So partnering is a, big, is a big thing in my mind. And we need to become even, even, even better at that. Also, when we touch on the environmental journey, without yeah. partnerships there, we are never going to achieve the objectives we put up. Mm. Yeah, and we definitely on that subject. We are all in it together, businesses, uh, organizations, government, and 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 all alike, uh, pretty much. Mm. Uh, moving to the to the last part of the of the discussion, I wanted to bring up the subject of talent. The subject of, of skills and and uh, and uh, future kind of future proofing the supply chain uh, uh, talent needed in in organizations. You mentioned in an interview that um, in terms of how you 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 understand management and and managing teams that you would rather that people stretch themselves than play safe. And I wanted to start with that and ask you. How, what does that mean to you? How does that translate in your management style and in the way that you recruit and develop your leaders at Novo Nordisk? Yeah, this is, it's interesting you've picked this up. Um, fundamentally, I would at all times prefer an organization that is daring. I think any job description or, or any current doing always has the opportunity to push the boundaries and do more. And having people or asking people to be daring yeah, you can do that in words but it doesn't mean a lot it is about creating a an environment in which people feel safe to be daring so that uh, that then actually comes back to me and any any leader in the team is you you kind of get the organization you deserve and unless you create and promote a culture and an environment in which people feel safe to experiment and push the boundaries of what can be done, it will not happen. I cannot ask people to think out of the box or be creative or innovative. It's just words, but I can create an environment in which people dare to and where they see that this is promoted, acknowledged and stimulated. And so I 
I will always ask my people, how do you know what good looks like? Who inspires you? What could we dream of? Where can we learn? I mean, these type of not being, not being content with current state, but let's see how can we push the boundaries. But it all really boils down to, have I deserved the trust of my organization that they actually dare to take those steps? And when things are then not going as expected or we are failing on elements, how I deal with that is probably the most important moment because if I react to that in a manner of, of disappointment or I'm upset with it or something, then, then that sets the tone for the next time. Being curious then on the learning or should we try it again? What can we do different next time? Or let's try to go another route. Those type questions is, becomes the proof to my organization that I'm willing also to take on a failure on the journey to do great. So to me, to, to me, this thing of stretching an organization or having people that are willing to stretch themselves actually stands at the foundation of trust. And I think there is, as I said, only one way to go about that. That is making sure you actually deserve that trust of you, uh, from your organization. Then I'm a rather impatient person myself, and I do love to go new ways. So being on a learning journey, exposing myself to new ways of going about things, trying things out is, is a personal belief as well. I get a, a lot of energy from, um, from trying out new things and, and going new ways. And so I put myself out to, to stay curious, to learn new things. I, I push my management team to, yeah, to go out and learn. It's visit companies, different industries, academia. What do we do to stay current and not? I think actually sometimes leaders and managers can be the barrier to transformation because of lack of knowledge or insights or because of Mm, too much pride in what we've accomplished up until now. I, I would rather try to be in an environment of humbleness where we know there's always more we can learn, always more organizations that can inspire us and create a culture of, of curiosity. So, uh, so that's what I mean when I say let's, let's, let's try to see how we get an organization that's rather willing to stretch than to play safe. Um, it's just more exciting to be in such an environment. Oh, for sure. And I, I loved also, um, I was reading that you, um, you use one of, uh, one of the African proverbs that I also personally resonate a lot with um, in, in terms of working, uh, working with the team. And, and uh, the proverb goes like this. If you wish to travel fast, travel alone. If you wish to travel far, travel together. And uh, you were saying that you, you always prefer to travel together. So I think that's a, that's a very good mantra. And uh, and also, you've kind of highlighted it all throughout our discussion also when you mentioned suppliers, and I, I hear it very strongly from you as well as when it comes to your management style. So that's a, that's a, great, um, that's a great way to approach things, I think. Um, and, and the team will always have more, um, more perspectives and a better judgment than one individual, for sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you a big question that's on, on top of uh, most agendas of companies. It's like as big as sustainability, I guess, nowadays, or, or on the same page, which is gender diversity. And gender diversity in supply chain is a big topic. You're a great example of that. Um, you're a woman in the, the top echelon of supply chain. And I wanted to ask for your perspective of how 
um, and, and what can companies do to encourage more women in, in, in senior positions, in, in management positions, in supply chain and operations specifically, because there, there tends to be a bit of a discrepancy still in terms of the ratio. Yeah, it's a, it's a question I, I get, and I always find it really difficult to, uh, to answer. The, the, the fact of the matter is that I don't necessarily think a lot about my gender when I engage in, in meetings or doings. It, it, I, I'm looking at the task more so. Uh, but I do realize that the statistics um, are, are definitely not um, reflecting the population in the, in the organization and the same uh, is the, the, the case in the company I work for. And when I, I go to conferences or meeting, I, I do see uh, an imbalance in, in gender. So I, I, I think there is an unconscious bias. I also think I may be as guilty as, as anyone else. So I don't think that uh, that is particularly men being biased. I think there is a a bias sometimes to promote people that look more like yourself. And since there are more men at the top, they are probably more likely to promote more men that like or have the same preferences in life that they do themselves. Um, so I think there is, a, and what we've done in Novo Nordisk is working quite a bit with the unconscious bias, um, not only on gender, but on, on multiple dimensions. And I do think that's a good starting point. Then I think there is a need to be uh, deliberately pushing ahead uh, female talent as well. So to make sure in the talent programs, there is a fair distribution representing the uh, population in the organization. And then you can start drilling that down. If that, if that is the case, then you need to start becoming better at spotting your, your diverse talents, but, but not only on gender, actually also on, on, on probably it could be educational background experience, uh, working style. I, th I think it's interesting to talk about di diversity on, on, on many aspects. Um, but I, I do think pushing ahead on the talent part is probably the most, um, or my most favor favorite way of going about it. So I'll make sure that when we send candidates for talent programs, or when I, I pick out people to drive initiatives, that that is, um, diverse population. I believe that builds the, uh, the, um, the leaders of the, of the future. I, I'm not in for the quotas. I'm sometimes asked about that as, as well. Uh, I, I don't think that is a respectful manner to, to go about promoting diversity. I believe in, in focusing on talent management and killing whatever biases uh, may be there. Big, big um, topic that I wanted to ask you about is sustainability because it's it's very high and it should be very high on everybody's agendas and on organizations' agendas. And I know that you do a, uh, a number of initiatives in the area of sustainability and, and the circular economy. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the circularity or the sustainability agenda has actually been with us for, for quite a number of years, 20 plus years, Novo Nordisk has has worked um, with our environmental footprint. And uh, we report out on the triple bottom line, uh, our financial uh, our financial performance, our social and environmental performance is reported out in one report uh, every quarter. So it's very high on the agenda and has been so for many years. Um, I'm really proud to say that by 2020, all of our manufacturing facilities will be supplied with renewable energy. 
we have um, built capacity around our factories by working in partnerships to create solutions, that being windmills or solar power uh, plants that will supply our factories to the tune that we are 100% covered uh, in our supply chain by uh, 2020. Circularity is also an agenda that's been with us for some time. We, we've worked in a symbiosis of 27 companies in one of our areas, making sure that the waste of one company became the resource of another. Very, very exciting things. We just launched recently our new environmental strategy that aims towards 2030, and it is under the headline of Circular for Zero. We want to make sure that we collaborate with our suppliers to find solutions to eliminate our environmental footprint. We want with all the choices we make internally, the company to, uh, to redesign, to make sure that we leave no, no uh, environmental impact. And we want to redesign and look at our products to see how can we, uh, how can we change our products to, to the circular principles and solve actually also the end of life uh, waste challenge that is uh, associated with our products. So we've uh, just launched a new strategy and, and it's certainly, um, certainly a very aggressive one um, that we are now uh, having mobilized the full organizations to find solution to together with our partners as much as, as bringing along everyone in the company to find the solutions to, to this. And that is, that is exciting times. It is how can we in, uh, work with our transportation partners to make sure that uh, there is uh, zero CO2 emission uh, coming from that. We, we can only do that in partnership, not as individual companies, but make sure that our suppliers are with us on that journey. It is working and, and, and favoring uh, suppliers that are thinking environmentally um, sustainable solutions as well. Uh, we want to make sure that 50% uh, of our key materials are, are sustainable by, uh, by 2030, that uh, we have zero CO2 footprint from our key suppliers by 2030, um, and, um, and that uh, we can find solutions for, uh, for, for half of, of the products that we have out there by 2030, so quite radically rethinking the footprint. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we want to go for zero impact across the board. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's fantastic. And the, the sooner the better. We, we definitely need it and the planet definitely needs it. Final question for me, Suzanne. Um, what is the best career advice you have received? You have come a long way. You have had an incredible journey, an incredible career. And looking back, um, and especially we have uh, a lot of young people and professionals listening to this, we have um, uh, mid-level uh, professionals, we have senior professionals, what would be a piece of advice that you've received and that helped you a lot through the journey? Well, there are a couple of good advices I've gotten. Uh, I think one of the more uh, simple ones is this one of being yourself. Uh, I think I was so impressed with uh, when I was right out of school, uh, when I met senior executives and things. But, but I, I would say that at the starting point, Please just be true to your own beliefs, be true to your own personality, be true to the thought that you have and, and voice out what you think and not trying to be too much a mirror of what you think other people may expect of you. It's a very simple advice, but at all times I prefer to surround my people, uh, be surrounded by people that are just speaking their voice and being themselves rather than trying to be something they're not. 
It, I'm sorry, it's it's that simple. Second thing that I've that I've learned, been advised, and that I also promote to people is that thing that the job that you've been granted is it's just this the starting point. In all positions, depending on your energy, your experience, your your visions, there is a possibility to push the boundaries. So your initial job description, that's basically just filling the minimum. But apply or push the boundaries of any job, the con uh, job content where you think that you can make a real difference. So that's why I also like to rotate people in my organization. Not because I think I'm, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm addressing something that's not working, but because new eyes will see new opportunities. And if people always try to apply and go where their, their enthusiasm and energy is, they will push the boundaries to what can be done. And so at certain points, you, you've, you've come so far in a job, someone else needs to come along and, and push new ways. And, and it, then for myself, what I try to do is, I try to push myself as well in terms of my knowledge, my understanding, at this moment in time, it's educating myself on, on uh, technologies that weren't uh, there when I took my engineering degree uh, 25 years ago, so that I can start pushing the boundaries of my current job, my current understanding of what can be done. So, uh, so, so be yourself and push boundaries would be probably be the two key points I would promote. Thank you, Suzanne. Great advice and um, many thanks for all the good uh, sharing case studies and examples and, uh, and, and concrete uh, stories that you shared with us in the transformation journey thus far in Novo Nordis and good luck to, to keep it running, to keep pushing the, the boundaries and to uh, keep traveling far by traveling together. Thank you. Super. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcotglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me note and if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business of course contact us as well to find out how we can help